Welcome back to the Constitution Line by Line. I'm Senator Mike Lee, and today we'll start to look at Article 1, Section 8. Because this article contains several of the most controversial and heavily litigated clauses in the entire Constitution, we'll be breaking up the discussion over the course of the next several episodes. Today, we'll look at the first two clauses, paying special attention to the spending clause. The text of this provision reads as follows, quote, the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States, to borrow money on the credit of the United States. This section lays out some of the powers specifically granted to Congress, as distinguished from those of state and local governments. In the first two clauses, we see the ability of Congress to tax, spend, and borrow money, and place restrictions on trade through tariffs and import duties. We also have the more vague terms, provide for the common defense and general welfare, which we'll look at in more detail in just a moment. To understand Article 1, Section 8, it's important to remember that the Constitution was in many ways a response to and a replacement for the previous Articles of Confederation, under which each state was basically a self-governing entity. One of the problems with this system was that the communication, trade, and movement between the states became difficult due to inconsistent laws, different currencies, and especially disparate trade duties and tariffs resulting sometimes in the economic balkanization of the states. The founders sought to solve this problem in Article 1, Section 8 by establishing certain uniform standards that would make it easier for citizens to interact with each other and conduct business across state lines. To this end, the section specifies that trade duties should not differ between states. They wanted goods to be able to freely flow across the nation and to discourage interstate feuds in which state governments could punish their neighbors through trade restrictions. Another difficulty with the Articles of Confederation was that there was no ability for the national government to raise revenue, having instead to depend upon the individual states. The founders believed in federalism, but saw it as necessary to maintain some national standards of law to allow the new nation of the United States to function as one country rather than a series of wholly independent states, each with their own economies. The spending clause also makes clear that it's the responsibility of Congress to defend the United States from foreign aggression. We'll have more to say about this when we get to the war powers portion of Article 1, Section 8, but the founders didn't want to have to rely on state militias alone when it came to ensuring the safety of the country. The second clause allows Congress to borrow money, which is an integral part of the power of the purse granted to the legislative branch. That power would be compromised if the ability to borrow had been vested in the executive branch or if it were absent from the Constitution altogether. Article 1, Section 8 grants Congress the power to levy taxes, but it's 
unspecific about what exactly that entails and whether there are any limits to that power. Now, prior to the ratification of the 16th Amendment, income taxes did not exist in the United States, and Congress raised most of its revenue through import duties and excise taxes. In Bailey versus Drexel Furniture Company in 1922, the Supreme Court interpreted this power narrowly, striking down a tax on child labor as exceeding congressional authority. And with the ratification of the 24th Amendment in 1965, poll taxes were abolished as an unjust infringement on the right to universal suffrage. Article 1, Section 9 also prohibits the levying of taxes on exported goods. In the text of Article 1, Section 8, the general welfare language uh, within the spending clause functions as a subordinate clause modifying Congress's authority to tax and spend. This has led to some debate about whether the clause represents a limitation on those powers or whether it instead grants Congress a separate and distinct power. In other words, is Congress's power to spend money restricted uh, to those purposes enumerated elsewhere in Article I, or can Congress spend money on anything deemed to be in the service of the common defense and general welfare of the country? Judicial interpretation on this point has changed over time. The previously mentioned example of Bailey versus Drexel Furniture Company demonstrates that justices in the early 20th century saw the general welfare language as a limitation, not as an expansion of congressional power. But that began to change in 1936 in a case called United States versus Butler. In, in that case, the Supreme Court was considering whether a tax designed to reduce crop yields and increase the price of agricultural products in order to benefit farmers violated or exceeded Congress's power under this general welfare clause within the spending clause. The court found that the general welfare language granted Congress an additional power not found elsewhere in the Constitution, although the tax was ultimately struck down on other grounds. In NFIB versus Sebelius, the Supreme Court of the United States concluded that Congress lacked the power to enact the individual mandate of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, under the Commerce Clause. Uh, but the Supreme Court, in that same opinion, said, but Congress did have the power to do that under the Spending Clause, because they construed the individual mandate as a piece of a tax, and that Congress could choose how to impose those taxes and choose where to spend money, and that that amounted to a valid exercise of Congress's power to tax and spend under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1. At this point, you may be wondering what exactly is meant by the term general welfare anyway, and if so, you're in good company. Alexander Hamilton and James Madison debated this very question in The Federalist. Madison took the narrow view that the general welfare merely referred to the powers otherwise enumerated to Congress in the Constitution, whereas Hamilton believed it meant something a little broader. Thomas Jefferson appeared to side with Madison, writing that Congress, quote, are not to lay taxes ad libitum for any purpose that they please but only to pay the debts and provide for the welfare of the Union. In like manner, they are not to do anything they please to provide for the general welfare, but only to lay taxes for that purpose. Over the last century, the courts have tended to favor the Hamiltonian view. 
in 1937's Helvering versus Davis, the Supreme Court upheld the Social Security Act of 1935 using the general welfare language as justification. The decision, written by Justice Benjamin Cardozo, granted Congress discretion to interpret the general welfare language, independent of judicial review, unless the choice is clearly wrong, as the court put it. Anytime you look at the spending clause, you have to ask yourself the question, is there any way in which we're reading this that could render the Tenth Amendment a nullity? In other words, if there's one thing that unified the founders, if there's one thing that brought them together, it's that they didn't intend to create and didn't want to create a national government with unlimited power. That, uh, that sort of power, the general police powers as they're often described, would be reserved to the states. Now the text of the original Constitution made that point pretty clearly, albeit implicitly. The Tenth Amendment was added a few years later to make clear what was already implicit in the text of the original Constitution, which is that those powers that were not given to the federal government by the Constitution and that were not denied to the states by the Constitution were reserved to the states respectively or to the people. To the extent that any one provision of Article 1, Section 8, to the extent that any provision identifying any federal power can be construed without limitation, that is, to the extent that any power granted to Congress is limitless, then to that very same degree, the Tenth Amendment means nothing. It cannot be the case that any one of Congress's powers can extend into everything. That's one of the reasons why there's been so much debate over this so-called general welfare language. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Constitution Line by Line. Next time we'll continue looking at the enumerated powers of Congress in Article 1, Section 8, focusing in on the highly controversial Commerce Clause. To make sure you don't miss out on that discussion, please be sure to subscribe to the channel and click the bell for notifications.